This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. All of us have secrets, things we keep from others, secrets we keep from ourselves. Our families have secrets. Each generation chooses what to tell the next. Our institutions are secretive too, religious institutions in particular. Now, secrets can be deceptive and malicious, but they can be lovingly motivated too, the desire to protect. There are times when keeping secrets is more moral than telling the truth. But when, that gets tricky, and our God Forbid panel will help this week. A first time God Forbid welcome to Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre. Hello, Simon. Hello, James. It's great to be with you. Also, Ashley Barnwell, sociologist at the University of Melbourne. Her ARC research is into how Australian families inherit their own family stories and memories and indeed secrets. Hi, Ashley. Hi, James. So why are you interested in what families tell in their stories and what they don't? I think, as you say, every family has secrets of some kind and It's a a very important way that people can learn about the past of their own family. Secrets can be painful, they can be whimsical, and I think that a lot of people are very interested in doing their family history and particularly in finding out about that link between the past and themselves in the present. And so, yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic. Is our attitude changing to it? There's this, uh, we're all crazy now about getting DNA tests or or using the internet to find out if we had any uh, convict ancestry or, or, or whatnot. How does this compare to memory, history and identity in generations and places gone by? Well, look, people are sometimes finding out things they don't want to know through these DNA ancestry tests, but definitely things that are kept secret in the past, you know, things like illegitimacy that would have had a huge social impact and carried a lot of social stigma. I mean, these are things that now we wouldn't think, you know, is that we need to keep secret. This is something that's so much more socially acceptable and doesn't come with those social consequences that it might have in the past. So certainly we see the nature of what is kept secret and the kinds of social stigma attached to particular things, that has changed over time. But there's also things, you know, in the present and maybe in the future that we will keep secret that might not have been so um, kept under wraps in the past. So I think it's not always just this linear progress story that we're becoming more and more open as a society, but that there's some quite complex changes over time. Well, there might be new secrets, people who say, of their past that they were once proud of, which would keep, you know, undercovers in the future. Simon Longstaff, what might that be? Well, I'm just thinking about people who might have been actively involved in the colonisation of Australia. They could have been participating in police operations or military operations against the First Nations people. And in a time past, they might have, you know, held that person up as a great pioneering settler. And in the future, they might say, actually, I'm a little bit ashamed of that and might prefer that people don't know it. So I think you can see throughout history that kind of ebb and flow as to where people choose to disclose or not disclose aspects of their own family background according to different notions of shame. Exactly. During the first part of the 20th century, it was shameful to find out that you had a convict, a first fleeter or a second or third or fourth fleeter who was sent out for stealing a slice of bread. Uh, you, you, you would keep that to yourself. 
then, at some point in the second half of the 20th century, it became quite fashionable to have. Mm. Uh, and the more extreme the punishment for the more minor the crime, the more, you know, bold the telling of the family history was. So, Simon, these things are all subjective? Uh, look, look, I think there are probably some things which are not subjective, where objectively you would say that perhaps one of your ancestors engaged in conduct uh, which by any standard at any time was wrong. So, for example, a person who had been a, a wanton murderer, rapist, slave owner or whatever, uh, you might say those things are not so subjective because there are ba- basic ethical grounds for reaching views about what should be thought of those things. But... In other areas, it will be subjective. It'll be to do with um, the fashion of the moment or the degree of understanding that we have or the degree of social acceptability associated with certain kinds of conduct from the past. Ashley Barnwell, do Australian families have a particular knack of holding secrets? Do these things change across culture? I think that probably if you looked into different cultures, you would find that there are some similarities across the secrets that families keep. I think in Australia in particular, like in the research I've been doing about people looking into the past family secrets in earlier generations of their family, there's something quite particular about the colonial context um, and and the kinds of secrets that that creates. But I think that there's also this sense that many people wanted to leave a past behind and to start a new life, and that can be about the convict ancestry, but there's also this great kind of history of bigamy um, in some of the Australian family histories that I've been looking at as well. So I think that each kind of different historical and national context produces secrets that are quite particular, Mm. although we might find, you know, similarities as we look across. Bigamy, people married to uh, two or more people. What was behind that? I think, you know, sometimes people left a family behind. I think also behind that is the fact that there was no such thing as uh, no-fault divorce (laughs) in the past. And, um, yeah, so people kind of made intimate lives work in different ways than what we might... uh, find acceptable now or that the ways that people would do things now. And you could just keep that a secret, Simon Longstaff. I mean, you've said that this fact that we humans simply have the ability to keep secrets, to have something in our head and the other person to be able to look at us and not know what it is, that itself is a kind of freedom. It's a very important kind of freedom. You can see throughout history when people have been subject to oppression, particularly when they've been locked up and treated in the most horrible ways, Uh, you can find, for example, Victor Victor Frankl talks about this in Search for Meaning. Uh, Everything else can be constrained in your life in the most awful ways, but you still have that freedom to hold in mind that point of resistance. And, of course, that's why George Orwell's um, account in 1984 of the mind being changed under torture was such a, a threatening idea because that was seen to be the last bastion of freedom of any individual. But... You know, that's an extreme case. Uh, What we have in our day-to-day lives is the ability to hold those views of our own, sometimes to keep the secrets of others and not have others be able to pry into it directly and therefore exercise that degree of freedom, whatever the physical constraints that might be imposed upon us. So what's the difference between having secrets and holding secrets, Simon? Well, I think that when you have a secret about your own past, uh, something which is immediately come to you through your own experience, then you have a secret in that sense. But to hold a secret is to receive a secret from another person and then to hold it on their behalf under whatever conditions they have imposed. 
and that creates a very grave moral responsibility on both sides. So the person who wants you to hold their secret, they have to meet certain criteria. The secret that they ask you to hold, I think, should be based on a truth rather than a deliberate falsehood. It should be something which is not widely known to others. I mean, there's some obvious things that make a secret secret rather than just confidential. And then you yourself, if you accept this burden, hold that secret under certain conditions which presume that you will not tell another person unless the conditions that have been agreed in the past have been set. And one of the most important of those is that you go to the person who told you the secret and ask whether or not it can be released at some point in the future. Mm. There's an interesting, um, a, a third layer to that maybe is the German sociologist Georg Simmel talks about the idea of secrets that are disclosed by accident. You know, people mm. that let on things without knowing to you and that what is our responsibility there as well. Sometimes we might hold secrets that are disclosed to us, not on purpose. How would you know it's a secret? Just out of interest, I'm not saying that's wrong, but how would you know it's a secret if it's disclosed to you by accident? I guess the, the idea that this is something that you know that that, that person doesn't want to know. And I think that's a fascinating thing that you hear in families all the time is that, you know, things operate as open secrets. And it's not as if anyone has explicitly said, you cannot repeat this. No, this is a secret. Um, and yet people learn through all these sort of subtle cues and, and different ways of behaving around certain kinds of information. And no one learns quicker Ashley, about how this dynamic works, then kids. You know, mm. It doesn't have to be a conversation. Dad, is this a secret? N- no. The children know that the temperature rather than the topic and it just becomes clear, well, this is not something to talk about. I really like that phrase, actually, the temperature rather than the topic. I think that's a, mm. an interesting way of putting it. Mm. Well, we're going to look at what happens... Well, with secrets and the self, secrets on the inside, secrets we keep from ourselves, secrets that are kept from us. That's all ahead on RN God Forbid. Trevor Jordan was adopted in the 1950s. Back then, we had secret adoption or closed adoption, as the system was sometimes called. The adopted child's original birth certificate would be sealed and a new one issued in its place with the adopted parents' names, not the biological parents. This meant people like Trevor didn't even know they'd been adopted when they looked at their birth certificate. He actually found out only when he was 24 when the man he thought was his biological father showed him an adoption order. Trevor Jordan is now an advocate for adoption reform and the right for people to have full access to information about their birth family. He's speaking with Richard Feidler. You found out you were adopted when your adoptive mother passed away. How how were you told, Trevor? Well, you know, that was interesting because uh, my mother had died. Uh, We had our first son was born just before that and he was born prematurely, so a couple of months and uh, we'd come home without him and uh, eventually uh, we came home with him. And, uh, and then uh, it was probably only a few weeks later that my mother died and I think discussions were... That was kind of bringing up the issue of heritage and, you know, saying how much he looked like my dad and all this. So, so whether that contributed to some of her anxieties. But uh, So she passed away and being the good son that uh, 
that I was uh, decided that we needed to move in with my dad to help him as a widower. Who told you? Was it your dad that had passed on the news to you? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, he, uh, when we moved in, he, he, he sat me down one day and said, I need to meet you in town in King George Square. I need to tell you something. And I'm thinking, what's this about? You know, there's a, in that stage, of course, in Queensland, you're thinking, well, is there something dodgy in our family? You know, because it's just like <laughs> it's part of the air you breathe that there were sort of two worlds, you know, one digi digi one and one that wasn't. And anyway, eventually he said, oh, look, I'm going to tell you now. And he said, oh, you're adopted. You and your brother are adopted. Complete news to me. And I could immediately sense some burden was lifting from him. You know, he just sort of seemed to elevate from having he kept this secret. He'd never wanted to keep it secret. And um, he handed me two pieces of torn, ripped up paper, very small, pinned together by the kind of um, a pin that public servants used to have in, on their desk in little bowls and he handed me, you might want find this information important and it had my birth mother's name on it and my name that I was given at birth and he also gave similar to my to my brother. Was it a birth certificate? No, no, it was a ripped up adoption order. So it was papers that were given to the adoptive parents about uh, the adoption order and obviously I think my mother had ripped it up but my father had kept kept it and put it aside because he had always wanted to tell but he regarded it as, as mum's business to to do all that sort of stuff. So, cool. so, so Trevor, with, with all of this, I mean, I, you know, I, I know you encountered all these roadblocks into in, in the process of trying to track down your biological family. It's, it seems like the ethics at the time were that it's less hurtful to everyone if you just don't know, if mm. you never find out, if that cord is cut, so the so the, you know it's ripping off the band aid, yeah. the the pain is over and done with really quickly, and everyone just puts it puts it in the past and gets on with their lives. That's right, and and that's the, the least cruel way to go about it. Mm. It seems to me like the thing that's missing from this this ethical equation. It's interesting you're an ethicist mm. as well. Is truth? That's There's right. no truth in here. That's right, and it was all about a clean, so-called clean break theory, which was just a theory and had no evidence. Based, whatever, but we found out that secrecy and lies has impacts on people and it breaks the kind of trust that you need in relationships of the foundation of family life and all relationships is trust. And so the absence of truth in that provides no ground for people and it's like being in an earthquake where you haven't got solidity under your feet. You've got things that keep shifting and changing and, and now it's not just adoption in areas like donor conception and surrogacy People are experiencing this too, donor offspring and people created by surrogacy, they will experience these same issues because, you know, there's 60,000 donor offspring in Australia and, you know, two-thirds of them won't be told they were our donor offspring. So the same, we're, we're not learning the lessons that we've learnt from adoption and we've learnt that information is important and connection and the truth. These lessons haven't been fully carried through that's Trevor Jordan, an adoptee, the CEO of Jigsaw Queensland, the advocacy group for adoptees. Well, Ashley Barnwell, what can you tell me about what he said in the rules? That we've come uh, some way from when he was first adopted, but like he said, many people still do not know who, where they come from or who their biological parents are. Absolutely. And I think that what's coming through there is some of the responsibility around institutions 
as well for being, the, you know, the provision of, of records to people. And I know that's been a big conversation about um, giving people access to the very stories of their lives uh, when sometimes this is the only way that people can learn about who they are, you know, in the absence of having been told that by family members. And it's really interesting in that clip too, you know, the different stakes in the, in the secret, you know, that difference between that it's mum's business, um, you know, and that people often, in hindsight, you know, learn about that mechanics of how a secret was kept within the family. Um, but, but hugely important, you know, these questions around what are the responsibilities in the wake of particular social policies and institutional practices that have had huge impacts on people's lives. Yeah, there were two major policies that have affected Trevor's life. The one that was put in by the government department that facilitated his adoption. Then there was his mother's policy that he not be told he was adopted. His father's policy was, adoptive father, was that he would be told and it was only when mum died that dad got to tell Trevor. Had dad died first, Trevor may never have known. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, when I look at different family stories about, you know, when a secret has been disclosed, often it is about, it is around a death in a family, um, that there is this opening up sometimes of being able to ask particular questions or um, to disclose particular material. But also sometimes that is when the opportunity to learn things are lost and that's often why you have people doing, you know, records-based research, archival research, in order to find out sensitive information about their family. Simon Longstuff, is revealing and unlocking secrets good, keeping and maintaining them bad in the adoption space, or is it more complex than that? Well, I think in general... uh, there should be a presumption in favour of truth in this case because the individual whose life has been affected, as the person adopted, has a legitimate right to know the truth about themselves. I mean that, I'll come back to the question about adoption, but just as a side comment, that notion about having a legitimate right to know, of course, has significant effect in terms of the keeping or disclosing of secrets. Uh, in, in a situation, for example, during a war, you might be holding a series of national secrets and those who are seeking to destroy you have no legitimate right to know. So they can ask away, but you don't have any obligation to tell them the truth in that situation. But in this case, getting back to adoption, of course the person has a legitimate right to know about their own past. There is one variable, of course, or maybe more than one that then comes to mind is, well, when are they told? Yeah. Uh, and in what circumstances? And, and and the when is not about saying, oh, well, those who are keeping the secret can hold it for as long as it is convenient for them. I would say the when is more about when is the person who has been adopted able properly to understand the implications of being told that they are adopted. So there is probably some variability in that, some judgment to be made. But ultimately, I would say there's no doubt that the adopted person should have disclosed to them at the most appropriate time, the truth about their own condition. Ashley Barnwell, you agree it's the adoptive parents should tell and keeping silent is not an option? I think that I agree in that, that people should have the right to know. I think I also, you know, and in that clip I was reflecting on the different changes over time about what was thought to be the best way to handle those things. And I think that's important to consider too, um, the context in which secrets were kept. And um, But also, you know, Simon's important point about the ethics of disclosure and how that's done. You know, in my research, sometimes people say, you know, they found out a really painful truth 
about their family at a at a wake or something, you know, and someone sort of just drops this truth bomb and sometimes that's not the best way to to learn about these things. Of course you want to know, but I think we also have um, a kind of ethical responsibility when disclosing information that could have a huge impact on someone's sense of self to do that in a way that's sensitive and as Simon's saying, you know, that's about timing, you know, it's about place, it's about who's the right person to be the one disclosing that secret. There's so many kind of ethical questions around that. Now, there's also a, a case where someone may be quite explicit in not wanting to know certain things. Mm. Uh, and I'm not talking here about adoption, but I'm talking about other things. For example, there are some people who don't want to know if their partner has had an affair. They would prefer if it's been and gone, please never tell me because that will destroy our relationship. So there's some variables in that direction as well. What do you say about that, Ashley? I mean, there are many times where we've been told things and the first thing that goes into your head is, I did not need to be burdened with that. Yeah, absolutely, that to, to learn things can be can be difficult. There's a, uh, a great play by Henrik Ibsen called The Wild Duck that deals with these questions and there's a, there's a character in that play who's a doctor that talks about this idea that kind of loosely translates to the life lie and this kind of untruth that we hang on to in our lives, that we need to be there, that we want to be there and that we're very attached to. And to have someone kind of open that up can be to really unravel things. And I think, you know, there's two different ways, ethics of that. And I think then what comes into it is who does the secret serve? You know, who ha- what, what can be lost and gained and for, for whom in that? I think sometimes that has to come into that question of whether you will keep a secret or not or whether someone has to be made to know something that they don't want to know. And also, what is our capacity to bear the truth? Uh, And how do we develop an increased capacity? Because the same person who might prefer not to know, given time and an ability to understand better themselves, their place in the world, might be able to sustain truths which they ought to know to a degree which they don't even imagine to be likely for themselves. Absolutely. And I think sometimes you see that that kind of modelling that can come from other people, that can be why it feels so cathartic to read a story or see a film or something where someone is dealing with a particular truth and gives you that model for how you might come to be in a place where you can work through things or... Interesting. So that's kind of a truth they're seeing in the model, even though it's not their truth. Yeah. I think that comes back to that, the commonality of secrets. You know, often the things that are kept secret are things that are socially stigmatised for many people. You know, it can feel, a secret can feel intensely personal. And often there are dimensions of it that are intensely personal, but they're also very social in the kind of commonality of the things that we keep secret or feel we have to keep secret. We think of stigma in the past, uh, uh, children out of wedlock, um, things like this, moving on to a a second marriage and keeping the first secret because you can't get divorced. Yeah. But also, I guess, things around sexuality or mental illness, like a lot of these things um, were very stigmatised. And still are. What about suicide? What does your research show? Absolutely, that was something that was kept secret in families and something that sometimes families express wanting to know. You know, people want to know the the medical history of their family, the, the history of mental health in their family um, for the present. Well, that's a secret. That's a medical secret. Yeah, there are often religious reasons for keeping that a secret too. For example? Well, suicide was considered a sin. You know, it was something that was absolutely... Um, 
against some of those morals. And that was, you know, in some of the families that I've studied, that's what they will say, that they understand that to be the reason that that was kept secret, like a suicide was kept secret by past generations. It's still illegal in 31 countries around the world to attempt suicide. I mean, I find that extraordinary. It's a real issue of human rights, but nonetheless, that's the fact. On our end, God forbid. Well, secrets, as is so vividly explained now by Simon and Ashley, can be intensely personal so often. But what about collective secrets, those held by entire groups, communities, even nations? We'll find out about those next on God Forbid. It could be argued we are a nation in Australia born in secret, founded on the violence of the frontier wars. So much of it is forgotten or indeed not remembered in what historian Timothy Bottoms calls a conspiracy of silence. Well, God forbid's own producer, Sam Carmody, has looked into his family history And what he found has implications not just for his family, but an entire region where his ancestors in WA have a statue in their honour, a highway named after a family member and even a town named after them. Here's Sam Carmody's amazing story of discovery. My great-great-great-grandfather was one of the early settlers in southwest WA. His name was John Garrett Bussell. One Christmas lunch a few years ago, my family was chatting about him, but my sister-in-law, Holly, had recently found out something troubling about that settler history, and she was burning to share it. Yeah, so somebody posted on Facebook something about they thought they should change the name of Bustleton because one of the bustles had um, shot and killed an Aboriginal girl and was fined a shilling The social media post that Holly had seen said the girl who was shot was only seven years old. Yeah, pretty much everybody denied that it happened. I don't think anybody at the table really wanted to face up to the fact that he'd actually done something bad as well as, like, had this legacy that everyone was really proud of. It seemed too shocking to be true. But later, when I investigated it, I discovered that it was true. A younger brother of my ancestor, Charles Bussell, did shoot and kill a child in 1842. A seven-year-old girl had stolen some flour from the bustles. Dr Chris Owen is an historian from the University of Western Australia. So Charles was trying to interrogate her and tried to scare her by pointing a musket, which he thought was unloaded at her, and he kept pulling the trigger just to scare her into confessing. Then the musket went off and the bullet with the lead went through her stomach and the girl died. I think everyone should look into the history of of their own family. Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar author who has explored Australia's history of settler violence. Aboriginal people do it all the time. We look into our histories to try and find out um, what happened to us. And I don't think it's too much to expect that colonisers do the same thing, look into and make the effort to find out what's in their past. I don't think it should just be the job of Aboriginal people to unpack the past. When I looked deeper into my family's past, I began to discover an even more disturbing picture including evidence of another terrible act carried out by settlers in the southwest that involves my family. In 1841, one of the most bloodthirsty deeds ever committed by Englishmen is reported to have taken place. That's taken from an account compiled by American historian Warren Burt Kimberley, who visited Australia in the late 1800s. Into the remote places this party went, 
bent on killing without mercy. Through the woods, among rocky hills and shaded valleys, they searched for the black men. When they saw them, they shouldered their muskets and shot them down. The massacre my family took part in, it has a name. It's been referred to by some researchers as the Wannerup Minanup Massacre. But even today, the story remains largely unknown. Oh, most definitely. Most people have no idea. Dr Chris Owen has researched the Wannerup Massacre as part of the University of Newcastle-led Colonial Frontiers Massacre Map Project. And Aboriginal people know all about it. You just speak to any of the Noongar people and they know all about these stories. Morning. How are you? Good, good. It's Saturday morning at the home of Wadundi elder Wayne Webb. On the table out back, Wayne has pulled out some books and photos. These stories are not that old. It's not that long ago. Wayne's son, Zach, tells me the oral history of what happened in 1841 after a settler was speared by a Wadundi elder named Gaywear. There was a whole bunch of old men and women and families camped around Rinanup. The story they tell is harrowing. The shooting of innocent Wadundi people, including children, as settlers hunted for Gaywear. And because they refused to tell the party where Gaywear and his sons were, that uh, they were considered as retribution as well. And they said that um, they were actually murdered or were shot and killed at the time. There are other shocking details I'd never heard before. They say that our grandfather was actually beheaded at the time in front of his two sons and his head was smoked in a hollow log. This is what we've been told is that that's what happened um, inside the forest. His head was then smoked, um, put in a barrel and put in Busseldon as a deterrent for any other Aboriginal people wanting to create resistance or resilience against the colony. Today, there is still no official recognition of what occurred in February of 1841. I call the president of the local shire where the massacre occurred, Michael Southwell. It turns out he has heard of the massacre. And so that's probably the next um, item that should be on the agenda is discussing what kind of um, memorial or remembrance would be appropriate so that the massacre isn't just um, left swept under the carpet. I asked Claire G. Coleman how it could be that I hadn't heard of the Wannerup Massacre, and most other people hadn't either. Really, if you think about it, the way to hide the massacres is to be in a country where the populace don't want to know about the massacres. Therefore, you could just put a, a sheet in front of them and no one will look behind it. That's Noongar author Claire Coleman, ending that story from God Forbid producer Sam Carmody. Well, Ashley Barnwell, what about Claire's point right at the end there about Sam Carmody's family and report? We don't know about massacres not because they've been kept secret from us, but because generally we don't want to know about or talk about the massacres. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, as as Claire Coleman says in that, in that clip, it's First Nations people have been telling the truth about this history for a long time. And it's a question of, you know, when will people listen and and there's a sort of a denial um, implicit there too um, in what's a- around the massacres that happens in families but also systematically in the education system in kind of these displays about what the nation is and where the nation began and all those kinds of things. Like you think about something like the 1988 bicentenary and the story, you know, the great myth, national myth that was, was created and around that event... Um, and that was so much a part of of education curriculums and that kind of thing. Like it's these secrets are within families, but they're absolutely within the nation. 
or the absence of the Australian frontier wars from the Australian War Memorial. Absolutely. I mean, we were hearing, and you touched upon it, like it's household general knowledge for Noongar people that there was a massacre in 1841. It's far less known to unknown elsewhere. Now, that's not necessarily because it's a secret. It's because it's been forgotten. Aren't they different things? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think sometimes things are a secret. Sometimes they're silences. Sometimes they're mythology. Sometimes they're things that are forgotten. Sometimes they're things that are denied. Like there's relationships between these kinds of uh, concepts. But and your and your work shows all the the borders between those different things are porous. Yes. Yeah. So what are the implications of this? As we take the uh, example of that massacre in 1841, we heard. Sam Carmody explore his own family story. We then heard him talk to the mayor who was aware of the massacre and thought that he might reflect upon that history in his capacity as a local government official. Are these fruitful endeavours? I think so. I mean, certainly people are doing this work, you know, that they're thinking about that they have to change, actually, the story that they're passing down in their family, that their ancestors weren't just, you know heroic pioneers to be celebrated, but actually, you know, sometimes they were involved in perpetrating frontier violence. And I think similarly, you know, I live in uh, what was very recently still called Moreland City Council, but has now been changed to Mary Beck. Um, and so that I think local councils are doing this work as well. And potentially, you know, we've seen such a huge resistance at the national level to, to take on these truths and to make these changes. And, you know, coming from the local level, from the level of families, from the level of, of communities and local councils, I think is where we're seeing a lot of change. You say the family story can shape the national story, uh, not just the other way around. Yes, I think it definitely can. I think that... Um, you know, if you, you hear it, like, in, especially with the capacity to share family stories publicly, which many more people are starting to do, you know, with a podcast like Sam's, to really make um, family a place where everybody can kind of relate and think, I have a family history. Maybe I haven't looked into that. Maybe I don't really know much about my own family history and the involvements of my ancestors in, in colonisation. You know, and it gives people that chance to tell a different story about history, but a different story about the role of settler families in the kind of nation building and also myth, myth building project. Simon Longstaff, what do you think about this? Well, I think the important thing here is getting a, a grasp of the fact that the truth is often, in fact, it's almost always complex. It's, it's neither all good nor all bad. And if one tells an account of a family's life or a nation's life, it's the ability to recognise both things and not let our inclinations, our confirmation biases and other things shape the story. So it's only that which is convenient to us, whichever part of the story we happen to be within. That's why it's so valuable to have historians and others creating spaces where you can encounter the truth in all of its variety. And that's what I hope we might do. You know, the story that Sam has given, there'll be countless others across the continent and its islands. Uh, what you want to do is to make sure that people who come to tell the truth can tell both parts and that both parts can be heard, the good, the bad, 
the beautiful and the ugly. And all of that is available for us to hear. And if you're committed to that, yes, it will be challenging on occasions, but it will also have moments when it's entirely uplifting. It really is truths plural, and they don't all have to be necessarily consistent. I mean, we're talking about truths as narrative, and necessarily, if you're, say, a I don't know, a colonial Protestant uh, settler, you're going to have a different family narrative to, say, a, a an ex-Irish convict or a local Indigenous person, even though every different narrative will have its truth. Yeah, but, but there are going to be some things which you can't gloss over, like if someone... If one of your relatives cut off someone's head and smoked it and used it as a warning to others, that's a basic fact about the, what occurred. Now, what it might have meant to different narratives is going to vary, I suppose, but at least that can be agreed as the starting point. And then we can make sense of what were the conditions under which such things could have occurred. And is it, do we have a climate conducive to make that sense? I think it's becoming more so. I think part of the situation in Australia is that whenever people start talking about truth as part of a larger program of reconciliation, the natural assumption is that all of the truth-telling will be dark and terrible, whereas I think that if we were to commit to it, it would have those other lighter, more inspiring moments as well. And we should be open to both, not foreclose on them. Not just dark and terrible, but always in one direction. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we should, we, I think we should, the key thing would be just to sit and listen, not not judge too much, but do that. And I, my sense of it is that the more and more Australian society understands that both of those, well, all of those possibilities are before us, the more there will be an inclination to to listen and, and to hear the truths told so that we can start to make sense of our own past. Do you agree with this, Ashley Barnwell? I think so. I mean, I think there's an interesting ethical question around is just, you know, is it enough to just tell the truth and to know it? But also, you know, what are you going to do with the truth? You know, what are you going to do with the way that knowing the truth about the past changes the way that we have to move forward in the future? So I think that that's a really important part of it as well is what are we going to do as a nation, um, you know, once once we agree that this is the truth, you know, about the yeah, past I, and... I, I agree, but I don't think you can know that till you've heard the truth. And yeah. that's the thing. I might mean, have to accept that you can't just say, oh, well, tick, we've listened. There's going mm. to be implications for this. But we don't really know what they will be because if we prejudge it, then we won't be listening. That's exactly right. Well, Simon Longstaff, we've all heard at last the truth of you know, the crimes of organised religion in terms of mm. institutional child sex abuse. How would that relate to what you've just said? Well, there was so much that occurred in, in all of that. Um, there were the terrible deeds themselves and then there was the truth that, particularly for the Christian religions, they'd spent 2,000 years proclaiming that love was more important than the law, that people were more important than property, that you should stand up and face the truth rather than hide away. And yet when the moment came where those things would be put to the test once it was revealed that clergy had been sexually abusing children and other vulnerable people, the truth is they put everything the other way around, in the, at least in their initial response. They put the law before love, their property before their people and tried to protect their backs rather than engage with the truth. Look, the motivations behind it were, were many and, and, and diverse. Well, it's, it's one of the motivations that religions are inherently secret because of the institutions they are. I'm not sure if it's inherently so. I mean, they've, they've often traded on mysteries. 
they've often produced a kind of priest caste who have access to things which ordinary folk don't. They've often used languages and symbols and rituals to obscure things, all of which has been an affirmation of the power of those who are at the centre of these things. But I don't know if any of those human failings are intrinsic to the nature of religious belief itself. Uh, I just think that's to be what humans do when they get hold of these things, often taking the, the potential of them to their worst effects. Uh, Ashley Barnwell, is this a, 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 the secret is a byproduct of two or more humans congregating, <laughs> getting together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think an interesting um, thing around, you know, royal commissions and that kind of thing is that it creates this opportunity to hear about the lived experience, you know, of the person who really bore the cost of that secret, you know, the person who was abused. And so that's a really important um, part of it, I think, is that we we really think about who gets to speak the truth about things that have happened at the at the cost um, at great cost. And there, and should there be a preference for the for one of a better word victim, the survivor, the person against whom the truth was you know maintained? I think often you know that's part of oppression was something that Simon was talking about earlier on in our conversation, and often people that have been oppressed, that, that part of that is that they have been silenced and that they haven't been able to speak to their experience. So certainly I think that's something that we see as any part of process of restitution or healing, that people have to be given a chance to, to speak about the way that their life has been impacted um, by being oppressed, by being discriminated against. On RN, it's God forbid. I'm James Carlton. We're with Ashley Barnwell from the University of Melbourne, Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre power and the effect of secrets when they're kept inside and let go. That's up next. What is the psychology of the secret? What does it mean to live with secrecy? Well, Professor Michael Slepian is the author of The Secret Life of Secrets, and the Columbia ethicist has new answers to old questions about secrets. It's something psychologists and social scientists have always been interested in, but for some reason, it's really gone unstudied for a very long time. And I think the reason why there's been so little work done on it until my own work is people have this misconception of what secrecy is. And prior researchers, when they looked at secrecy, they defined it as an action of concealing information during a conversation. But I define secrecy as an intention to hold information back. And what's so important about that definition is the moment you intend to keep a secret is the moment you have a secret, well before you ever have the opportunity to to hide it. Mm. And also people rarely hide their secrets. We don't go around asking people, you know, have you ever cheated on your partner? (laughs) Uh, You don't often get questions asked about your secrets. And so they don't frequently come up in conversation. It turns out that it's also not very difficult to hide secrets in conversation. In most cases, you know, you just don't reveal it in the conversation where you're talking about it. And people are kind of prepared for those moments. What they're not prepared for is all the times that their mind returns to the secret. So we see that the more people think about their secrets just simply alone in their thoughts, the more that those secrets harm their well-being. Mm. And so just having to think about the secret on your own time turns out to be where the harm is. The more you think about this secret, the more ashamed you might feel, the more isolated you might feel, or the more unsure or uncertain you might feel. 
Professor Michael Slepian in Sana Kadar's report. Well, Simon Longstaff, the more you think about secrets, the more harm you do, we just heard. Wouldn't that ideally mean we have no secrets and by that measure, no harm? I don't think I'd go that far. Uh, I'm not sure that every secret being held or shared is a source of harm. In fact, sometimes the sharing of a secret can be a way that people bond together. They form a a common project around it. And it's not necessarily going to be destructive of the interests of others. So I would question the the core assumption that, that that's based on. But allowing for the fact that some secrets are destructive and that the destruction begins with the intention to keep it secret, then yes, we might be better off if that happened less. But I actually think uh, that there is a legitimate role for secrets as well. And so uh, a world without secrets um, wouldn't make much sense. And it's, it's an interesting thing to do with the relationship between secrecy and trust as well. There is a movement um, in Australia and around the world to promote what's called radical transparency in which everything is fully disclosed and nothing is kept in confidence. And in that situation, I think it can actually be quite destructive of trust because trust is ultimately based on believing that people will do the right thing when no one is looking, when no one can see. And that can extend, I think, in part to the world of secrets where for a good reason, something might be held secret Um, And we need to be able to trust people to know when and how to do that. And that, of course, um, can be challenging in some circumstances, such as those we've recently discussed involving churches where it can be abused. But in other times, it's a perfectly valid approach, which is for the good, not of individuals alone, but also potentially of society. So what might be examples where transparency is the enemy and secrecy is the good. Well, well, I think radical transparency is potentially always the enemy if it's going to be destructive of, of trust because it makes it redundant. But to go back, to, I think, to what is the sense of the question, look, we can think of examples where uh, you might be in government and there's some terrible fate about to befall the nation and you need to, it could be some, I mean, some, some disease that's coming in or uh, whatever, And you might say, look, we need time to prepare ourselves for this particular disaster. And so we're not going to disclose what we know at this point in time so that we can avoid panic until there are sensible answers to be given for those who will be concerned. Well, one sees this during time of war when uh, how the nation is faring in battle is is managed. And that can be for good motive to to manage the morale of your Team Australia. And that's where you've got to be really careful if you're in some public position like that, that you are actually and genuinely acting in the public interest rather than your own personal interest, which you try to sort of dress up as being in the public interest. Well, what's wrong with commercial interest and secrets? You and I come up with a secret recipe to defeat Coca-Cola, we'll go commercial in confidence, we'll patent it, and suddenly we've got a drink that tastes better than Coke. Is it bad for us to keep that secret? Well, the whole point of patents is that it doesn't keep a secret. That's why we have patents. We've invented these things, that is the patent, as a way of ensuring that people can disclose what they've discovered, but have some protection from it being exploited by others who haven't done the initial hard work. Uh, but the whole, that's, as I say, there's, there's many devices we've developed as a society which are intended to ensure that 
as there's there's as least amount of secrecy necessary, whether it's in commercial terms or in the public interest when it comes to government and things like that. But to say that we aim for the least which is necessary is not to say that it's never necessary, only that we put in place prudent measures to manage that whole question. Hmm. And and Ashley Barnwell, is this a balancing act from your perspective as a sociologist? I think that, I mean, going back to your question a little bit before about, you know, can secrets, are they always harmful? And I think sometimes the more harmful thing is the social stigma that mean that makes people feel like they have to keep a secret. And so to be able to get to some point in your life where you see that the social morale around a particular experience has changed and that you can finally kind of be open about who you are or some life experience you've had. I think that that can be great. But I think also, you know, with what Simon's saying, it's really important that people have a right to control the information about who they are um, across their life sometimes, you know, if they're trying to protect themselves from discrimination, from stigma, um, that sometimes, yeah, in certain situations they may not they may not want to disclose aspects of their life and who they are and that they shouldn't always be made to do that. I remember during the, the LGBTI politics of the 1980s, there would be radical queer groups which would see it as legitimate as outing people they knew to be gay who were in a public prominent role giving a straight image or even a homophobic image. And they said, no, all bets are off. Your secret's at the window now. We can out you in the collective interest of the liberation of LGBTI people. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it's always this ethical weighing up of, of who bears the cost of the secret. Like, you know, is it, is, is it the individual, is it, is it society, is it the collective? And how do we make an ethical decision around whether the secret has, does more harm than good and to whom? And last word on this, Simon, do you, who makes these secrets? How are they made? And is there any reward or benefit once the decision's made? These things are all left to us, aren't they, as individuals? They are. That's part of the ethical obligation of being a person, that you are endowed with the capacity to understand such matters and to exercise informed choice. You can live, as they say, an examined life. <laughs> Well, we can examine questions relating to secrecy. Uh, quiz questions, in fact. <laughs> Which end is up next? Wits end. Uh, yes, it's it's Wits end. The God forbid quiz. And as always, we begin with the buzzers. Now, Ashley Barnwell, your buzzer is the reason people keep secrets. Test it. It's a secret. Yeah, it's a secret. That's why you can't tell. And Simon Longstaff, you get people that keep secrets by saying this. Test your buzzer. Hey. Hey, shush. Yeah, thank you. God forbid buzzers are working. Now, question. The original chicken recipe of the famous American fast food company KFC is known to have how many secrets, herbs and spices? Hey. Eleven? Correct, Simon. The eleven secret herbs and spices in Kentucky Fried uh, Chicken, an incredibly successful marketing ploy. Apparently a copy of the secret recipe signed by the Kentucky Fried Chicken founder, Colonel Harlan Sanders himself, is stored in a vault uh, at the company's headquarters in Louisville. Apparently KFC employs two different firms to formulate the herb and spice blend. Half the recipe goes to one, 
company. The other half of the recipe is outsourced to the other, and that's in order to maintain the secrecy of the 11 herbs and spices recipe. Well, there you go. I think that ad's probably big enough for ABC. Next question. Um, who wrote, if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself? Was it George Orwell, Mark Twain or Oprah? Megan. There's another option I'll throw in. Was it Megan? If you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. Hey. I want to guess. Mark Twain. George Orwell. There mm, you go. See, that, I would have had that as a guess. I should have jumped in. I could have yeah, robbed yeah, you your point, done. Simon. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll jump in here, Ashley. Question. What dark family secret did actor Richard Roxburgh discover when he traced his ancestry on the uh, SBS show? Who do you think you are? I'll give you a clue if you want. Yeah, okay. Let's take a clue. Uh, his great great-grandfather lived in the Caribbean, a Scotsman, and did some naughty things. Like owning slaves. Yes, a powerful uh, trader in Trinidad and Tobago, 109 slaves he owned on his sugar plantation, and he was an active campaigner against abolition. So that's what Richard Roxburgh discovered about his family ancestry. Next question. According to uh, American propaganda posters in World War II... What was it that could sink ships? It's a secret. Loose lips. Correct. Loose lips sink ships. Ashley Barnwell. Servicemen and women were warned on these uh, propaganda posters that careless talk could be overheard by enemy spies. Well, that brings us to the end of the quiz. Um, The winner, it's obviously secret, but um, the participants have been Ashley and Simon. Um, uh, Thank you for being on the the show, Ashley Barnwell. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Ashley, a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Melbourne, her Australia Research Council project, Family Secrets, National Silences, and uh, also Simon Longstaff, executive director at the Ethics Centre. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks. I've really enjoyed being with you and Ashley. You can follow the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app. You can email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.